Meditation is very popular, especially here in the United States, becoming increasingly popular. Time magazine had a cover story on meditation. It said Om on the cover. <laughs> and many different styles of meditation, uh, schools of meditation have come here to the West. Um, Zen was one of the first to come in. Yogic meditation, of course, even before that. Um, Hatha Yoga always had with it, with it a component of meditation. Then it was uh, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi with the transcendental meditation in the 60s, 70s. Um, and many other forms of meditation. Right now the rage is uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And, um, so mindfulness, even little children are being taught mindfulness. I was in, um, in my summer tour in a place in my host's home. This is little, the da little daughter. When she was extra hyperactive, the mom would say to her, uh, mindfulness. And she has about a 20-second technique or something to be mindful. She'll sit quietly and follow the breath for 20 seconds or 30 seconds. So mindfulness is all the rage now. Um, and it's popular, all of these techniques, and rightfully so. It confers a lot of benefits. The benefits of uh, meditation have been talked about, researched, publicized. It... Um, boosts the immune system, uh, it generally calms down the mind, it helps you to fight stress, definitely to reduce stress. Uh, it helps in pain management. There's another big application of mindfulness recently that uh, I remember a doctor in a conference once said uh, that pain is, the, especially chronic pain, those who suffer from chronic pain, that is about 80%, 70 to 80% of it is, um, it, it's not physical. It is our anxiety, our expectation that it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt. Um, it's going to make me feel uncomfortable. That contributes to our uh, total discomfort and suffering. And mindfulness can help us by distancing, by objectifying pain, by making it this thing. Unpleasant thing, but a thing. Uh, it puts some distance between you, the subject, and pain. It helps you to manage pain, the suffering from pain. Been, it's been used for creativity by managers. You know, once you can observe your thought processes, helps you to think out of the box. It's been used to improve focus, definitely for students uh, for who are studying, for improving, improving attention. In, um, in an age which is suffering seriously from attention deficit. Not just kids with ADHD, it's most of us who are distracted by those infernal devices. <laughs> um, so definitely there are many, many benefits. Perhaps I would say the biggest benefit is that it allows us to observe our thoughts Whichever process of meditation you do, ultimately it will allow you to objectify and observe your thoughts and thereby gain a little distance from your mind and thereby gain a degree of control over your mind. There's a saying that, you know, the mind is a, 
uh, is a good servant but a poor master. So you gain a little distance from your thinking process and gain a little control over your mind and don't react, you don't react as um, in a knee-jerk fashion which we are used to, you become calmer. You don't react immediately to annoying circumstances or difficult people and thereby you become wiser and eventually more compassionate. I think that is the, the major, one of the major benefits of meditation, mindfulness and so on. By the way, the technique that we did was um, uh, derived from a Buddhist tradition. It's a preliminary part of the vipassana meditation. But this is not the primary purpose of meditation. This is not the primary purpose of meditation. This is meditation, the purpose of meditation is none of this. Neither better health, nor uh, um, curing diseases, nor fighting stress, nor calming down. None of these are actually the primary purpose of meditation. The primary purpose of meditation is self-realization, enlightenment. All the ancient traditions from which these, these techniques are drawn, whether it is Zen or um, Patanjali Yoga, Transcendental meditation, um, mantra yoga, uh, or Tibetan Buddhist meditation, or mindfulness meditation, and so on. All of them, the original traditions, whether in Hinduism, mostly these are Hindu or Buddhist traditions, they all aim at enlightenment, self-realization. Meditation is the stepping stone to enlightenment. Meditation itself is also not enlightenment. What about all these benefits? They are true. You do get these benefits. You do get these benefits, but they are like perks on the way to enlightenment. You get them. They are side effects, good effects, benefits, perks. But the point is, and the end is, enlightenment, self-realization, nirvana, moksha, satori, whatever you call it. That is the goal. In fact, there is an interesting story about Maharshi Mahesh Yogi who came in the 70s and taught Transcendental Meditation. Here in New York, in fact, that's where he became, first became very popular. Um, and when he, there's a story that when he went back to India on one, one of his early visits, the other monks there, they asked him, what are you doing there? What, what are you teaching them? And you know, meditation makes you younger and more flexible and more uh, calm and a nicer person, um, fights aging, fights stress. Of course, all this is true, but this is not the purpose of meditation. What are, why are you telling them all this? And then it seems, he said, and I like this quote, he said, I give them what they want so that they will want what I want to give them. <laughs> you get it? Ultimately, meditation wants to give us enlightenment, realization, who am I? That enlightenment. Now, once you get these benefits from meditation, and you, your interest deepens, and you want to know what next, what is deeper, what is, what is higher than this, then you bring out the real goal of meditation, that is enlightenment. So enlightenment is the goal of meditation. How does it go about it? How does meditation, yoga, I'm using yoga and exclusively in the sense of meditation here, how does yoga help us in enlightenment, in self-realization? Let me use the term self-realization. How does yoga help in, in self-realization? 
what it does is this yoga meditation calms the mind the mind which was going many ways is calmed by meditation for example the meditation which we just did <coughs> what did we do we anchored the mind to the breath the breath is continuously there as somebody said it's a good idea to keep breathing <laughs> so the breath is continuously there so it's something always available to us it's rhythmic and continuous so the mind can be anchored to it anchored to it means think about notice the breath that's all pay attention to the breath and to help you further a sensation associated with the breath at the preliminary level which we did now they they will say that you notice the movement of your belly as you breathe in the belly expands outwards as you breathe out the belly collapses inwards just notice the movement of the belly along with your breath that anchors it further gives you something more physical to notice to keep your mind anchored the mind has a tendency to wander away you would have noticed in these 10 minutes how many times i don't know you don't have to tell me how many times you lost count <laughs> to help you to think to to anchor the mind further a count is set up there's nothing very mystical about it a count is set up and the count can be it, it's and these techniques are refined further and further there actually i just gave you the second level of a 10 level nine or in some versions a 10 level deeper and deeper and deeper mindfulness meditation uh, technique so what we did was just the just a little one step ahead of the first level you count in or count as one or if it is um, it that's not enough you can count one when you breathe in and two when you breathe out three when you breathe in and four when you breathe out so the mind is anchored by that counting even so we notice how the mind wanders even when we are anchored in so many ways the attention wanders from here to there what meditation does what yoga does is calm down the wandering of the mind in fact the definition of yoga given in patanjali's yoga sutra yoga chitta vritti nirodha yoga is the cessation of the modifications of the mind what's the modification of the mind what you just experienced the mind thinking of the breath the mind thinking of one two th- what was it two or three i, I forgot okay one again that is the that is the movement that is the modification of the mind what you notice just there thoughts ideas emotions desires memories intentions so judgments these are modifications of the mind and yoga is chitta vritti nirodha cessation of the modifications of the mind how do they cease you can't stop it straight away very difficult so what yoga does is it first makes it focus how does it, how does it make it focus maybe a mantra maybe om maybe the breath something it makes it focus maybe you think of krishna and repeat om namo bhagavate vasudevaya or you think of shiva and repeat om namah shivaya what it is doing is the mind which thinks of many different things is now made to think of one thing and then next that thing and then next that thing 
It is compared to a monkey. You know how monkeys jump from tree to tree, branch to branch? They climb up a tree and then don't, don't climb other trees. They jump from one connecting branch to the other branch. And our mind is like that, like a monkey. It, it works with links. From one link to another. One thought and something else occurs to it. It goes there, from there to another thing, to another thing and so on. That's how the mind moves. What meditation does is, what focus does is, it gives it one anchor, maybe the breath. You breathe in and I say one and the mind thinks... Um, when was breakfast again tomorrow? No, no, no. Breathing in, to Instead of going from there, then what? the food was really good. And what will be there for breakfast? It goes that way. Instead of going that way, you bring it back to, okay, breathing in. Again, it goes up somewhere else. Okay, bring it back. Breathing in, breathing out. Count. One, two, three. So the monkey, instead of jumping from branch to branch, is made to climb the same tree and not go to different trees. This is how yoga proceeds. By concentrating the mind on one thing, again and again and again, the mind is calmed, you get, a, you get control over your, over your attention, over your mind, and then eventually you know what will happen? At one point, the, the modifications of the mind cease altogether. It becomes one-pointed, absolutely concentrated, and then this mind thinking things it stops. The mind is still awake. You have not fallen asleep. It stops. Then what happens? The third sutra of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Tada drashtu swarupe avasthanam. Then I, you, our real nature, the Atman, is appreciated, is realized as it is. Drashtu drashta means the seer. The seer means the witness of the mind. Swarupe avasthanam. Swarupa means in its own nature. Avasthanam means stays. It stays in its own nature. It is appreciated in its own nature. Swami Vivekananda gives a fine example of a lake. Just like the lake there. When there are waves, you cannot see the bottom of the lake. When the water is muddy, you cannot see the bottom of the lake. But when the water is clear, and there are no waves. One can see straight through to the bottom of the lake. Exactly like that, when the, the waves of the mind are calmed down, and the mind is clear, sattvic, not dull, what is beyond the mind shines forth. It is, it is seen as it is. You see yourself, see within quotes. See yourself as you really are as this witness consciousness of behind the mind or underneath the mind, beyond the mind, shining upon the mind, as you realize then, I am not the body, I am not the mind. I am this awareness shining through mind, experiencing the body. Through mind and body, experiencing the world. World changing, body changing, mind changing, that witness consciousness does not change. It illumines these changes. That I am. So that is realized. At other times what happens? Fourth Sutra. Vritti Sarupya Mitaratra. The Patanjali Yoga Sutra. At other times what happens is, whatever the waves in the mind, in the lake of the mind, that witness consciousness gets identified with them. Anger. I am angry. Not that there is a wave of anger in my mind. I'm going to get you. <laughs> no. 
I am angry. Irritated, I am irritated. Flash of um, joy or boredom, I am happy, I am bored. Not that I recognize a movement of happiness, a wave of happiness or boredom or irritation in the mind. Or dullness or sleepiness in the mind. Because all of these are qualities of the mind. Vritti sarupya mitaratra. At other times when the mind is not stilled, you the witness consciousness, you, get, you are mixed up with the mind. So this is the philosophy of yoga. This is how yoga works. Meditation works. Even this meditation technique which we did, if you persist, the idea is if one persists long enough with it, and takes it up at deeper and deeper levels. I told you there are nine or ten levels to it. In some versions ten, some versions nine. It takes time. The Yoga Sutra says, Dirgha um, Kalena. It takes a long time in Nairantarya. That means not one retreat in a year, or once a year. <laughs> Every day, morning and evening, year after year. And then one begins to attain that, those states of mind where the mind is calm enough for you to appreciate the witness of the mind, beyond the mind. So that is the, the, the approach of yoga. Now, the other one, the insight approach, the Vedanta approach. What is that? Think about it. This witness consciousness, is it there only when the mind is calm? Or is it there when the mind is active also? It's there all the time. It's there all the time. Yeah. I was just looking at the lake out there. And in the lake, not now, when it was, there was daylight, you could see, when you look into the lake, you could see trees and the sky and the hill and even birds flying in the sky, you could see in the lake. Now, if I tell you, when the... It's absolutely dark. If I ask you the question, when can you see the water of the lake? When all these reflections are removed, when it's dark and no reflections are there, then only it is water? Or is it water all the time? What do you think? Do you understand the question? That if, you, if I say, show me the water of the lake, what is this water that you speak of? You say, look there. And if I say to you, there in the lake, it's just, uh, it's a tree and it's a, it's a forest, it's a sky and it's a hill. So no, 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 that is water. In fact, there is no hill and sky and forest or anything there. That is water where all the reflections are. If I'm missing the, missing the water for the reflections, I'm, I'm just seeing the reflections, I don't understand what water is. But does that mean that water is not there? Does that mean all the reflections have to be removed for water to be there? No, no, no. In the same way, what the inside, the Vedanta approach says that even now, even without the yogic samadhi, the deep concentration, uh, thoughtless, calm state of the mind, even without that, even when you're thinking, right now for example, you're thinking, listening, at this time also, you are still that witness consciousness. Yes, but the yogi would argue, Yes, that's true, but how, how would we know that? Because we are mixed up with the mind, right? It's a question like saying, how would we know it's water? Because there are so many reflections. What would you say to such a person? The reflections, I can't, what's water? It's just reflections. If I ask you, here, this is a table, 
and you say no 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 this is actually a, a, a wood and this is actually wood and uh, the yogi says when the table is smashed into powdered into wood powder then it is wood otherwise it's a table otherwise it's being a table obscures the fact that it is wood the vedantin says even when it's a table it's absolutely just wood when you touch it you say touch wood you don't say touch table it's wood right now. So, because our attention is drawn to the table name and form, we think that uh, th that is the reality. But actually the reality of it is the wood. Because what you touch is the wood. What If you weigh it, it is the wood. Whatever it's physical and solid here, it is the wood right here. Similarly, all the experiences that we have, the witness consciousness is present continuously. You don't have to stop the mind. The yogi says, stop the mind, then you will realize that you are pure consciousness. The Vedantin says, even when the mind is functioning, you can realize that you are witness consciousness. You can use the functioning of the mind, no need to stop it. You can use the functioning of the mind to recognize your true nature as the Atman, as witness consciousness. That is the way of insight. Uh, how is it done? One way, do you understand the first way? Calming the mind down, ultimately you realize that you are beyond the mind of an unchanging awareness. But in the insight path, how is it done? Through pointers. Through pointers. Let me give you an example. It works like this. I'm going to show you a pen in my hand. Please look at the pen in my hand. Can everybody see the pen in my hand? Is this an experience? Yes. All right. You are seeing the pen in my hand with your eyes. Now draw your attention away from the pen in my hand to your eyes with which you see the, see the pen. Close the eyes. Close the eyes. Now open the eyes again. Now close the eyes. This opening the eyes and closing the eyes, was that not an experience? Tell me. That I, my eyes are closed. This is a thought. Note the fact, my eyes are closed. Is that not a thought? And is the thought not an experience? What is having that experience? Who or what? In what light did that thought shine? Try again. Open the eyes. Here is the pen. Be with the experience. I, ex I experience the pen with the eyes. Now draw my attention to the drop the pen. Draw attention to the eyes. Close the eyes. That was an experience. Now I note my eyes are closed. That noting, that thought itself is an experience. Be with that thought, my eyes are closed. Note that my eyes are closed. And this noting that my eyes are closed, this is an experience, a thought. In what light, to whom or to what is this thought coming? My eyes are closed. 
gently open your eyes again. Do you see what I mean? That one, this pen, you're seeing this pen in my hand, it's an experience. Clearly you are using your eyes. Your eyes are there, that means clearly. This, it is appearing to your eyes. When you close your eyes, it's an experience noted by the mind, closing the eyes. Clearly it was noted by the mind. See that it's a fact. The fact that my eyes are closed is a thought. And that thought is being experienced. By what? You can never objectify it. No more than you can see your eyes. You cannot use your eyes to see your eyes. Similarly, consciousness cannot objectify itself. But you can note its reality. That there is something in which my thoughts shine. There is something to which my thoughts appear. Try it once more. Another example. This is more subtle. Close your eyes. Now there is a faint sound outside this hall which I will ask you to attend to. The chirping of the insects outside. Listen. Now focus on the chirping of the insects. What is aware of that chirping? In what awareness is that experience of the chirping happening? Slowly open your eyes. Are you beginning to get a sense of what I'm trying to point towards? It's like this. I'll quickly draw a diagram there. Do you see the difference between the two approaches? One approach is the meditation following the breath. To make it work, you have to do it. You have to actually, you are breathing anyway, but you have to attend <laughs> to the breath. You have to anchor your mind, follow the breath. Breathing in, breathing out, you follow it. After some time, your mind will calm down. Your attention will become directed and focused. This one, what we did just now, it works only if you get what I'm trying to say. This awareness, this focus of the mind can be done. It can be focused. It takes effort. Distracted mind is one thing. Concentrated mind is another thing. And the distracted mind can be concentrated by a process of meditation. One process is what we did just now. But this awareness, Behind the mind, beyond the mind, it is not to be manufactured. It is not to be attained. It's always there. It's natural. It's who we are actually. 
So it has to be recognized. It has to be noted. It can't even be objectified. You have to realize it as yourself. It is always there. So basically the only way to do it is to, is to get it. You know, what is being pointed out, to note it. I'll try to show it in a diagram. Here is the word outside, the table, the wooden table which I just showed. And here is the person. And the person sees the table. And let us say, here is the mind of the person in which there is a movement in the form of the table. Movement in the form of the table means a thought about the table or the experience of seeing the table. He sees the table. And this whole thing is lit up by awareness. I can put it this way, consciousness, the big C. This is the mind, body, external object. So the external object, when you see it, what happens is, your mind takes the form. This is called a chitta vritti, a modification in the mind, and it has an object. It, it refers to an external object. It is about something. And what we experience all the time, what we experience are these vrittis. Don't think that you are actually seeing Swami or hearing the talk or actually even eating food or even tasting food. Not at all. All that we are doing is experiencing our own thoughts. Dispute that. No materialist, not even the most, the, the hardcore reductionist also will say that you are directly experiencing an external world. Not at all. What happens is light is reflected on the table. It goes into your eyes. All that we see, you think we see a world. We don't see a world. All that we see is, uh, uh, is light. Isn't that true? The eyes are meant to receive only light. Thank God. If the table started to go into my eyes and the pen and the clock, we'd be blind in no time, we have to call 911 all the time. What happened? We saw something. <laughs> no. All that enters our eyes, our eyes are meant to take in only one thing from the universe, and that's light. That's all that should enter the light, uh, eye. So by the time that goes into your eyes, it's just light. And that light gets modified again, it's constitutes an image in the lens of your eyes. By the time the table is gone, it's, it's just an image in the lens of your eyes. That's not what you see. That is again converted into little electrical impulses in, the, in your optic nerves and transmitted to some center in the brain. And there, again, it is somehow reconstituted into the image of a table presented to your mind how nobody, nobody, not even the most advanced neuroscience practitioners today have any clue. Not only that they do not know, they have no clue at all. Dispute it, you cannot. Even the most advanced uh, theories, and they are only theories, none of them know exactly what is the connection between, there is a connection between brain and mind. But somehow, the electrical activity of the brain gets translated into the mind. Nobody knows how, not all. We only know the functioning Science, by, by principle, has to stop at the brain. 
There's nothing more that is observable there. After that, it depends on the report of the person who is uh, the, the, the subject. So it goes to the mind. By the time we are here, we are already beyond well, what is observable in the brain. In the mind, the table is the image of the table is presented as a thought wave. Memory kicks in, brings out past information, language kicks in, says it's a table, and the ego sense kick, kicks in, says, I am seeing a table. All of these thoughts become as this one. And this is lit up by awareness and you get the experience, the first person experience. I am seeing a table. I am seeing a table, mind. The first person experience, the awareness of it, consciousness. All that you see and hear and smell and touch and taste is in your mind. And obviously all that you think and remember and desire and hate and love is your own mind. Nobody ever directly experienced the world or the universe. That's actually beyond doubt. Yes. So if you say, are you recommending, uh, are you advocating an idealistic, subjective, idealistic position in philosophy? No, 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 I'm not doing that. But whether it's realism or idealism, whatever your position in philosophy, that has to be argued after this. But up to this point, nobody disputes it. Think about it. Who disputes it? You cannot dispute it. It's a fact. All that we experience are in our mind. A, a monk in, uh, in Uttarakhand, he said very nicely in Hindi, I translate. Shant man me bala samsar kaun dekha Whoever has seen samsara in a peaceful mind? Nobody. What it means is, we think, it's a, it's a valuable insight, we think our minds are disturbed. Let me finish this. We think our minds are disturbed because the world is disturbing us. What the, that monk said was, we are disturbed because our minds are disturbed. It's not that the world is disturbing our minds. It's because our minds are disturbed, that's why we, we are disturbed. Uh -huh. Samsara appears to us because of a disturbed mind. We think that samsara disturbs our mind. If you have a peaceful mind, a serene mind, the same problem, the same annoying person, the same pain in the body, the same uh, unfortunate maybe financial condition or whatever, all of that, your, your reaction to it will be completely different. So, the mind, that, that is the vritti in the mind, and what yoga does is, it tries to calm down the vrittis in the mind, as the vrittis in the mind calm down, and then finally sees, the idea is this is like the lake, and this is the consciousness, is like the bed of the lake, beyond the lake, this will become evident. That's what the Yoga Sutras is. It becomes evident you are not the mind. Certainly you are not the body. And you are not even the mind. You are not the person you thought you were. You are the awareness in which the person, the mind and body, are functioning, appearing, doing their thing. This becomes evident in yoga, in meditation. What Vedanta tries to do is, let it go on. You are experiencing a table. Vedanta asks you the question, what is experiencing this thought on the table? It should be possible, even while experiencing, because this consciousness is there. 
Without this consciousness, this will not be possible. This consciousness has sometimes been compared to a space, a luminous space. In fact, in, in sometimes, in Buddhism, one of the terms used for this pure consciousness is the clear light of the void. The clear light, it's a beautiful term, clear light of the void. One of the techniques used in another stream of meditation, I didn't mention, Kashmiri Shaivism. It's called the Pratyavigya philosophy in Kashmiri Shaivism, very sophisticated techniques of meditation. In fact, one of their texts, the Vigyana Bhairava, has 112 techniques of meditation. One of them is this, is here you have to keep your eyes open. You have to look up at the bright blue sky, at a cloudless, vast, bright blue sky, stare at it, lie back in the grass, <laughs> relax, and look up into the bright blue sky so that you see only the bright blue sky for a while. Don't try it right now because there'll be ticks. <laughs> and, but the technique is very interesting if you get the principle of it. Uh, the technique is, as you see that, close your eyes and imagine, bring to your mind's eye the vast blue void the shining blue sky and nothing but the sky, nothing but the sky. Intensely imagine it and in a moment drop the sky. Just let go of the sky from your imagination. Now what will happen is, or should happen is, if you try it intensely enough, it's a way of tricking the mind. How if you have lum a luminous sky and the sky is the jada or insentient part of that that imagination, if you drop the sky, the luminosity itself without the sky will suggest to the mind the pure consciousness behind it. So you, you should, it's a sort of way of tricking yourself, tricking the mind into noticing the light permeating the mind just as the bright, brightness, the light, light fills up the sky. A bright luminous sky is what? It's two things actually. It's sky and light. If you can somehow drop the concept of the sky from that, what is left over is the light, and it's sort of, you're sort of suggesting to the subconscious mind. If you drop the mind, what's left over is consciousness. Yeah. That's from the Vigyana Bhairava. If you get it, it should be played, what, at least in concept, what they are suggesting. And you don't get it, what is all this sky and dropping the sky and <laughs> you you had a question? Yes. Yes. Don't try to uh, it's something that when you intensely, first you see the sky, then close your eyes. Now it's in your imagination, the bright blue sky. It's, it's, it's a simple imagination. Vast, bright, shining sky, blue sky. Now just drop that. What will be left over, 
don't try to l l retain anything over. What should be left over is the suggestion of luminosity pointing towards consciousness, towards that awareness. Ah, empty, nothing. And that empty, nothing is an experience to what? To? Uh, maybe, but, but yes, yeah, you're right, yeah, correct, correct, right, 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 exactly, you've got it, there, there, yes, yes, you've got it. Uh -huh. You see, it, it's, it's not very difficult, it's a kind of turning like this, we will explore it more and more and more, these are the two approaches, we'll explore it again tomorrow, the two approaches, we'll do the meditation again, and then, yes, this is the time for questions. The emptiness is the mind without object, and yet it is experienced. What experience is it? It is seen, it is experienced in something. Clearly, it's, a, it's your experience, otherwise you wouldn't be able to say emptiness. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think, um, based on logic, reasoning, examples of three states and everything, Correct. you can logically understand that yes. this consciousness but it's still within and it still feels temporary. Hmm. When, when you sleep, you don't experience it. Hmm. And it's also very difficult to experience that it will be beyond this body. Hmm. How do you get to that infinite and permanent experience? All right. Correct. So, he, he asked, what's your name? Som. Som. Som asked a few questions, interesting questions. Um, that it is, one can logically understand this, uh, but it is very difficult to notice it and hold on to it. Not only that, um, in sleep, for example, it's not always there, and, uh, and then uh, how do you know that it will remain after death, after the destruction of the body? Uh, all of this? Huh? What do you think? We'll discuss it, we'll discuss it. I'll answer, but let me give you two problems of this approach, this insight approach, Vedanta approach. Two problems to be aware of. The problems of the yogic approach are well known. If you try to meditate, you will immediately see, mind is difficult to control. The mind goes here and there. No matter how much you anchor it, breathing in, breathing out, already forgotten. All right, movement of the belly, gone. Belly itself forgotten, movement of the belly. And then... Um, all right, at least count. Uh, one, two, three, then what, three or four, what was it? <laughs> that's also gone. So that's mind is difficult to control. That is an evidently a problem with the yogic approach. It's a difficult process. And uh, Arjuna mentions this to Krishna. And that uh, in sixth chapter, somebody said to me, am I doing it wrong? I'm unable to focus. I said, you are, you are modest. You are asking if I am doing it wrong. Arjuna didn't even do that. Arjuna in the Gita straight away told Krishna, your teaching is useless. <laughs> in sixth chapter, he says, what yoga has been taught by you is no good. <laughs> Why? Because it's impossible to quell the mind. It's impossible to, it's, it's like trying to control the wind. Arjuna says in the Bhagavad Gita. That's the difficulty in the yogic path. It takes a long time. The mind has to be trans transformed from primarily tamasic to rajasic 
do sattvic otherwise meditation will not work and the sattvic mind has to be trained dirgha kala for a long time nairantarya that means consistent practice krishna says to arjuna it is difficult no doubt but it's possible through vairagya and abhyasa by systematic practice over a long period time and also by dispassion for that which ties you to the world that has to be cut down that's the yogic path the difficulties are well known the solutions are also are well known though difficult to implement now in this insight path the difficulty is subtle and the solution is also subtle the difficulty is this one when one begins to understand what this path is talking about the path of vedanta the path of knowledge one gets the sense that it is first of all effortless because something is there what effort do you have to do to convert this table into wood what effort Zero. nothing you have to recognize it is wood that's it that's all effortless the second thing you sense that it is instantaneous the moment you get it you've got it it might take you time to manifest it and so on but getting it stumbling upon it recognizing it instantaneous so these no doubt these are the advantages in one sense it is effortless and it is instantaneous but these are two are obstacles also what happens is it leads to a kind of passivity and laziness not doing anything so i need not do anything rather this method this approach demands constant engagement yoga you can have an excuse i need to sit in my meditation mat in the morning and in the evening and practice yoga not at other times not possible one of the brahma sutra says asino sambhavat which means it is possible while seated so you can't there is a way of walking meditation but it's not commonly done um so yoga is a particular practice your body has to be in a particular position your breathing has to be in a particular position your mind has to be focused on something yoga requires that but the way of knowledge is open at all times whether you are walking drinking talking whatever you are doing doing you can use it i asked you to note the sound of the chirping of the insects right now in yoga practice that would have been a distraction suppose it's not so loud here because the windows is doors are closed if you open it it's loud now if you're trying to focus om here and then then that that sound comes all the time you think oh i have to bring my mind back here om and that sound comes <laughs> in yoga it's a distraction in the path of gyana you know what would be done you note that it's disturbing you focus on that because the object is not important use that to become aware of that which is aware of that 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 sound anything can be used to turn inwards anything anything can be used i remember i i did it actually one of the most annoying things i don't know about you but a crying baby on an airplane <laughs> i once i thought let me try it does it let me see if this is this is the test if it works here it'll work anywhere <laughs> and i'm telling you i had deep meditation it's such an incessant loud and annoying noise <laughs> if you focus on it you can't mistake it and if you just link it to what is aware of it immediately 
deep meditation mind immediately becomes calm because whatever is disturbing the mind is now pointing it back towards its real self you can do it but then this path engaged uh, demands continuous engagement not a uh, one hour in the morning one so these are the two dangers of this path that it seems instantaneous another it seems instantaneous and effortless that's one another danger of this path is theorizing conceptualizing because it is using the intellect to understand something the intellect would like to have answers so and it will get answers and there is all that we learned in rigdrishya viveka and aparoksha anubhuti and panchadashi and so many if you have been listening to the talks there are answers a whole structure is set up and answers to many questions are given and all of them are good provided they all point you back towards what's right there right now the tendency of the mind is the intellect is here is my question ah i got the answer finished not finished now look inside again <laughs> yes that is why this retreat the other classes which i have given and i'll continue to give over the months and years they give you the 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 teaching but here we are trying to employ the teaching to go inwards all right let me try quickly to respond to your question you have a question uh, yes uh, hold on to that let me answer your question remember two two, up, two problems i've given you with this path of insight one is that it seems to be effortless and instantaneous practically it is not it demands constant engagement the second thing is it, there is a tendency to philosophize theorize intellectualize conceptualize which is good but it should not stop there i had a question i've got it there is a book i've read it and and that's it i've read it i know it no you don't you have the words but you don't you don't know what the words mean the great philosopher wittgenstein i remember uh, and there is a very nice story about him uh, whenever he would teach and the next day next class if somebody said professor you said this he would immediately deny it he would say no 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 i didn't say that i said this and then one of the students wanted to catch him at at this and he wrote down exactly what professor wittgenstein had said next day in the class he said professor you said this said, no 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 i didn't say this he said but these are your words exact words i have noted them down you said this and he said yes but those words don't mean to you what they mean to me <laughs> there's a point that's the thing what the teachings of vedanta what they mean to an enlightened person they don't mean to us if we have not actually made the breakthrough yeah. so that's why we must not stop at theorizing must not stop be satisfied with answers or with the books okay now your question was it seems logical rational what is being mentioned at least it's possible here i want to stop you i want to say first of all um it's not just logical logical or rational i would like you to notice it not just as a possibility not just as an intellectual conclusion but as a reality as real as let me ask you this pen in my hand is it a, a possibility a theory or a fact your eyes are seeing this pen theory or fact you don't seem to be convinced maybe you're <laughs> maybe you're sleepy we'll continue this little more because there are one or two questions to deal with fact your eyes are seeing this fact or or um, fact. 
Mm. Not fiction, not, but what I mean is it's, t- it's a fact. You close and open your eyes and you note it with your mind. My eyes are closed, my eyes are open. That is fact or theory? And that thought, my eyes are closed, that is experienced in, in you, the awareness. Fact or theory? You're saying it because you expect me to, that you think I expect that answer. If you can say that it is fact with conviction, then I would advise you, stay with that fact. Try to appreciate what it is that is shining upon your thoughts. It is something prior to your thoughts. Thoughts come and go, that stays. It is that which makes all experience possible. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Right now, every bit of your experience is because of that. You say, no, 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 I know, I know, no, go on. No, not go on. Stay with it. If it is a fact, then you have already got it. Now all you need to do is to appreciate what you have got. If it is not a fact, most people would say it's not a fact. Yes, yes, that I, I mind I understand, but witness of the mind, pure consciousness, it is something that I have to realize. I have to become enlightened about it. Vedanta insists it's as much a fact as this pen in my hand. In fact, this pen in my hand and your eyes and your mind, all of these are dependent facts. That's an independent fact. It's because of these all the rest are, is revealed to you. It's something that you have to grasp to see that, yes, it is so. Once you have grasped it, then the rest becomes easy. You can work it out yourself. So, you know, what about sleep? What you are talking about is the memory of of, uh, an experience called sleep. Was it there? Must have been there. Otherwise, how do you have the experience? How how can you even speak about sleeping? Do you admit it is there when when, um, you're dreaming? Do you admit it? That, that that awareness must be there when you're dreaming? Yes. It should come out. Yes, obviously. Otherwise, how can I dream? Some awareness must be there. So it is there in waking. It is there in dreaming. Now, when dream sees blank, some are already going into the blank. <laughs> when, when I talk about this, there's a natural tendency to look inwards and see that's good. So in that place, you are welcome to close your eyes and look inwards and see. If you're feeling sleepy, then don't close your eyes. Open your eyes and listen. I'll ask you just one one point. You can discuss it later, but uh, I'll give you just one pointer. How is it that we are able to talk of the experience of sleeping if it was not an experience? If we did not have some kind of experience of deep sleep, you know what would be our report? I was awake. I went to bed. I had some vague dreams and I'm awake again. That I had deep sleep, dreamless sleep. I slept like a log. Every language, in every culture in the world, the phrases are there similar to this, which report deep sleep. How would we report it? Otherwise, we would have just reported nothing, blank. Death. Death. How do I know that the, that the consciousness continues after death? You know where this question is coming from? Already I made it axiomatic that this body is real and this body and brain are generating consciousness and if this body dies, how do I know consciousness exists? But let me ask you from your own first person perspective, 
are you a body experiencing awareness or are you awareness experiencing a body yes in principle then you are you could be awareness experiencing the absence of a body every day you do that in your dreams in your dreams your physical body is on your bed and sleeping you are completely unaware of it you are imagining a different place dreaming a different place a di different body different events now your consciousness awareness continues with a different set of imaginations and has no reference to your actual physical body sleeping on the bed that means in principle as a first person experience it could go on without your physical body it's only we think that it has been generated by this physical brain that's why we think it's rooted to this physical brain if this is destroyed that you will say no the body is the body is alive that's why you are dreaming if the body is dead you will not be able to dream but that's already assuming that's not your experience your experience is i can dream without reference to my waking body yeah question example oh you're stuck with that <laughs> drop it <laughs> <laughs> yeah tell me Yes. So this example of the technique that you're teaching us is to create that daylight between what we perceive as the mind hmm. and the consciousness that yes. hmm. So when you say drop the mind, yes. it still means not you know, like not thinking, right? True. True, true. Yes, it, it's a way of um, tricking the mind into that. It's actually a tantric way. Uh, it's in uh, it's in the um, Vigyana Bhairava. Yeah, yeah. It, what it, it it's a see yogic way is a way of controlling the mind. What we did the meditation with the breath. The Vedantic way is using the intellect to see through insight. The, this meditation, what we did, it's more of. Um, like a message to the subconscious to get it when you drop the mind it's like a vivid experience it's like an aesthetic experience which suddenly catapults you to that it's not exactly controlling the mind it's not exactly um intellectualizing or trying to get an insight it's um taking a back door entry into it there are two ways you know for example see how the mind works note how the meditation techniques i give you how they worked I told you to sit straight and close your eyes, how to place your hands, how to breathe, and then what to uh, concentrate on. A linear set of instructions. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's one way of doing it. There's another way. The tantric way, which is, uh, works through the subconscious mind, the back door of the mind. You know what it goes like? It goes like this. You've seen that hill there outside, across the lake, that mountain? I'll tell you, sit like the mountain and breathe like the wind. Whatever that means to you, do it and you'll see. The mind understands. It's not, a, it's not the logical mind which listens to it. It's a kind of aesthetic experience. Sit like the mountain. Imagine that you are the mountain. How does it sit? You'll see, your meditation will be very deep. That's the back door to the mind. Yes. Can we have awareness 
it should seem so. Awareness means two things. Good point. Here there are two things. There are two kinds of awareness. I will I'll take it up tomorrow. Two kinds of awareness. One is this one which we are familiar with. The awareness of seeing, hearing, smelling, talking, touching, tasting, thinking, remembering. This is all that we are aware of. So all of this is consciousness plus mind. Consciousness plus mind. Will this kind of awareness continue without a brain? That's the question. And Vedanta would say no. No. Without a brain, with a physical body dying, awareness sort of curls up into itself. Like a deep sleep experience. Like a deep sleep experience. Maybe something that happens in deep sleep or coma or something like that. Where consciousness alone exists, but there is nothing for it to experience. Because the instrument for ex uh, experiencing is no longer functioning. It's still there. It's curled up. When it gets a new body and brain, it will start working again. Nowadays we can understand it very nicely with only what information technology and all. All your data is uploaded. Your laptop crashes. <laughs> your laptop crashes. All your data is still in the cloud. But you can't access it and you can't do anything until you get a new laptop and you get it all back again. This one works much better. In Vedanta, they will say it's not that you get, you memorize the Gita in this life and next life you remember the Gita. Not like that. <laughs> but what will be continued will be according to Vedanta, according to Hinduism, Buddhism, those who believe in many lives. What will be continued will be a set of impressions, tendencies, capabilities, capacities. In some rare cases, actual memory may be transmitted. But actual memory is very difficult to transmit. I mean, it's still there, according to yogis, Patanjali Yoga Sutra says, all the memories are still there, but we can't access it. I mean, how much do we remember? If I ask you, what did you eat now? You'll say, yeah, you limited it tell me. I ask you, what did you eat this time last week? <laughs> last year? <laughs> no question, I don't remember. How many of your memories were, do you have from when you were two years old? Nothing. From when you were six months old? Nothing. So what about past life? Just imagine going through the trauma of a death, and what, whatever lies in between, and the trauma of a, of a rebirth. So, memory. So, to, uh, to answer your question, this functioning um, awareness, there are names for this. The mind will not function without a brain. No more than the data you have got, programs, apps, you have got will function without a computer itself. But consciousness, awareness itself, pure awareness, there, the question of functioning doesn't have, uh, uh, doesn't arise. It's not something which is functioning. It is ever there. It's a shining force. It's a light which is ever there. It's not doing anything. This one is doing. It's an action. Thinking, seeing, hearing, spelling. You can actually see it working, turning away. But this one is just shining force. This plus this is what we call our functional awareness, the vrittis which we have. The pure consciousness itself is our real self. That can continue, that's what we are saying, it can continue without the brain also. Because it's not dependent on the brain. Even this is not dependent on the brain, but this mind uses the brain to become active. It will not work without the brain. I think we'll come bring it to a close. Yes? You, you asked me to remind the story of oh, me. Funny story, I don't know how many of you are in I think we should end with a funny story. <laughs> yeah. Yes, tomorrow is a long day ahead, so um, we will focus. But let, let me just share this story. When I heard that there is a 
um, house called Panini here. Uh, the funny story is actually about Patanjali, but it starts with Panini. Panini is, is the ancient Sanskrit grammarian. So if you study Sanskrit grammar, you have to study Panini. And I remember that when I first came to the United States, we were driving along, which, which city I forget, maybe Los Angeles or somewhere. And I saw a little shop, it says Panini. And I said, look, this. And before I could say anything, and another person who was in the car understood what mistake I was making. I said, no, 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 Swami. It's not, the, uh, no, it's not gram Sanskrit grammar, it's bread. <laughs> it's Italian bread. But the funny story concerns um, Patanjali, the, of yoga fame, Patanjali Yoga. Um, he wrote the classic manual of meditation, Patanjali, the Yoga Sutras. But... In ancient Hindu mythology, Patanjali, the founder of the yoga system, is said to be an incarnation of Sheshanaga. You know, in the, in the, in the iconography, Vishnu, he lies on this bed, his cosmic bed, which is a thousand-headed serpent, the cosmic serpent, Sheshanaga. Um, so Vishnu is a bit of a couch potato. He is... <laughs> He lies on that uh, bed, and Sheshanaga is, the, is this cosmic serpent. Um, and Patanjali is said to be an incarnation of Sheshanaga, and he is said to have given three boons to humanity, medicine for the mind, for the tongue, and for the body. So he's the founder of the system of meditation, medicine for the mind. System of Sanskrit grammar, uh, for, that is medicine for the tongue means for the speech, so they can speak Sanskrit correctly. And medicine for the body, he is the patron saint of uh, Ayurveda. The Ayurveda system is descended from Patanjali. So he has given these three systems to us. This, the story concerns grammar. The, the sutras, you know, the systems of knowledge in India, they were codified into sutras, little aphorisms. The yoga sutras, for example. Now the grammar also is codified into the Panini sutras. Um, Panini, all of Sanskrit grammar can be understood by studying the sutras. But they are incomprehensible in themselves. They have to be explained. And the explanation was written by Patanjali. So Patanjali is known as the Bhashyakara, the great explainer or the commentator on Panini's Sanskrit grammar. Now the story concerns Patanjali and, and, his, and his explanation of Sanskrit grammar. So this is how it goes. Patanjali used to teach his great commentary called the Mahabhashya, great commentary on Sanskrit grammar. He had 1,000 students and there would be a big hall and a stage, like the stage back there. He would sit on the stage and he would teach. But his rules were that when he, he taught, the curtain had to be drawn, had to be pulled. It would be covered and he would teach from behind the curtain. And everybody loved the lessons. They thought that he's talking to me. He's solving my doubts. He's answering my questions. And it's wonderful. It's like he's speaking to each of these thousand students individually. Now, of course, students being students, they're mischievous everywhere. One of them couldn't contain his curiosity. So he thought, what is going on? Why is the old man hiding behind a curtain when he's speaking? Let me see what goes on there. And so when the class was going on, he crept up to the corner of the stage 
and he lifted a corner of the curtain and he looked inside and to his he was stunned and amazed and terrified what he saw was not a stage it was the entire cosmos stars and galaxies and covering everything this terrifying gigantic serpent with a thousand hoods spitting cosmic fire the fires of cosmic dissolution and of course he fainted immediately when he saw that he fell back and the curtain also fell back in place a little corner but one spark of that fire the cosmic fire of dissolution had escaped from the corner of that curtain and that was enough to reduce all the students to ashes they were burned to ashes and um, patanjali immediately regained his human form he pulled the curtain aside and he jumped out of the stage crying alas alas i am undone not because the students were burnt he said who's going to learn grammar now <laughs> <laughs> at this point one boy comes into the hall and says sir may i come in miss my theory that he had gone out to the you know restroom break <laughs> so somehow he was not in the hall when this disaster unfolded and uh, and patanjali rushes and embraces him and my boy you are my treasure um, you are my all in all because he's he's going to spread grammar so he transfers all his mahabhashya the great commentary to him and the story doesn't end there this boy learns and then he compiles all of them notes into this you know they, they had palm leaf notes and then he takes leave of his guru his master and promises to spread sanskrit grammar for the welfare of everybody and he's on his way on his way to his village where he will establish the first grammar school he takes a nap under a tree because it's hot and keeps the bundle of notes there palm leaf and there's a goat who's <laughs> chewing the grass there and he no no notices the juicy leaves and he starts coming and he starts chewing the uh, notes the leaves and this boy gets up in in horror and he sees what's happening and he shoes away the goat but the damage is done a part of the leaves are are gone and that's why to this day a part of the great commentary of patanjali is not available <laughs> and it is called that portion the missing portion is called ajabhakshita bhashya the goat eaten commentary <laughs> i'm sure at some point it must have been um, uh, i mean lost or misplaced and so now you have this nice story to back it up <laughs> very good let me end with a peace chant om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna rupanam astu